for our guest today. Um, he's been a friend of Chatting with Sherry from the very beginning. He gave us a chance to talk to him when we first started. And to be honest, I didn't know what I was doing. Uh, he has been a great supporter as well as a good friend. Thank you, Steve. His name is Stephen L. Sears. He is multi-talented. He is a producer, a screenwriter, an author. Very nice man and very charming. I think you'll enjoy our little chat. Here's Steve. Hi, Steve. Welcome back to the show. Hello, Sherry. How are, How are you? you doing? I'm fine. How are you? <laughs> um, for those of you who wonder why that was kind of a, a weird little response from me, uh, Sherry and I obviously, be, before we started rolling the tape, we were chatting and I made a comment. Uh, I asked her, I said, are we... Are we on the air just yet? And she said, No, no, we haven't started. And I went, Okay, I need to uh, to know when to use my official on the air voice. <laughs> so here's my official FM voice, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Chatting with Sherry show. Thank you, Sherry. How are you doing today? <laughs> it's a very good voice, Steve. <laughs> remember that? I mean, well, I don't know. For those of you who are older, you remember that there was AM radio and FM radio way back before streaming and. AM radio was always, well, we got the greatest hits going on right now. We're going to do the top 20, starting with our number one hit of the week. And then you had FM, which was, now we're going to slow it down just a little bit with the mellow sounds of the underlying artist starting right now. That's right. I do remember that. <laughs> yeah. And I did radio. I actually, uh, for a short time, I was a, uh, I was a radio DJ when I was a teenager at WAOC in St. Augustine, Florida. Country music all the time. And back then, every country music song began with the same chords. <laughs> oh, are we still on the air? Yeah. Oh, hi. I was like, I was <laughs> How you doing, Cherry? I'm fine. I was just laughing. Um... I was just reminded of um, there's I had this old record um, well it wasn't old then uh, it was the Carpenters and uh, on the record they did those voices it was part of the, the songs and oh I, yeah that was um, I know which one that is uh, oh gosh I, I was a huge Carpenters fan um, let's see there was the one about uh, you know calling occupants from interplanetary space or something like that. Um, it had like the yeah, motorcycle noise. Yeah, I, it had you know, boom, boom, boom. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I remember that song. Yeah, uh, I used to be a Carpenters. Well, I still am. Uh, I was a Carpenters fan, and I and I find um, the Carpenters to be incredibly fascinating. Karen Carpenter. For those of you who don't know, most people do. It was it was um, Karen Carpenter and her brother uh, Richard, I believe. Richard. His name was yeah. Richard. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And they were a, a singing duo. Uh, Richard mostly did the composition, played the music, uh, piano especially, and Karen was the singer. And the drummer. But here's the weird thing about it. And the drummer. Well, here, I was going to say, here's the weird <laughs> thing. Um, Karen, I guess I, I remember reading their story in that Karen kind of got involved with this because Richard and a couple of his friends were, were, you know, playing around with being a band, and she joined in. But here was the thing. Um, Karen Carpenter wanted to be, as you were about to say, she wanted to be a drummer. Uh -huh. And she was a drummer. Uh -huh. And people don't know, she was an excellent, excellent drummer. The singing for her was just like, okay, fine, I'll sing. But she was one of the few um, artists in the history of art <laughs> to have this incredibly natural, pure voice. Mm 
Mm-hmm. And it was. And she and it was it was just natural to her. And that voice, um, at the time that they broke out, there were a lot of protest songs coming on, but she was singing more like love songs. And that voice was just incredibly riveting. It was it was just so pure. And I mean, there are a few singers who have that ability to control their voice in such a pure uh, nature. Uh, Dolly Parton, by the way, is another one. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and she was she was just incredible. And so they had this string of hits. And um, then, un- unfortunately, um, uh, Karen suffered from anorexia yeah. and bulimia. And that eventually weakened her heart enough to where she died at a very young age. But um, just left an incredible legacy. But yeah, I remember the first time, because I was a drummer. I was a percussionist when I was younger. And the first time I saw her play drums, I was like, holy crap, wow. You know, you didn't see a lot of female drummers back then. Yeah, and she accompanied yeah. herself on the drums as, as part of the band. Mm-hmm. So so you see her yep. with her headset and the microphone and the drums, and she's singing these beautiful ballads as she's drumming away. It, it's just, she yeah. was amazing. There is no, there yeah. is no one, I don't think there will ever be anyone like her. She was one of a kind. Yeah. And the, for the television appearances that they do on variety shows, she wanted to play drums all the time on those. But the management or the network or whomever, the powers that be, kept saying, no, you know, you're, you, you are an attractive woman with a beautiful voice. We want you standing in front without anything to block you. And she was like, yeah, but I just want to play drums. Uh, there's a clip online of... Um, some sort of a jam session where there's all these drums are all over the place and she just runs around playing all these drums. So, uh, uh, pretty incredible. When I need soothing, I always put either um, a CD of Carol Carpenter or I, I put on YouTube with her music because she's just got, she, it just, her voice soothes me, especially when I'm really upset. <laughs> yeah, well, with me it's either Karen Carpenter or Alice Cooper. They're practically the same. Alice Cooper suits you. <laughs> <laughs> I was a Coop fan as well. You know, uh, the Coop, uh, his band, himself, Michael Bruce, one of the lead uh, songwriters in the group, um, they wrote quirky, interesting songs, and I loved the psychology behind them, and I thought the way they did their, you know, they were one of the first groups to do really big presentational shows and their rock concerts, and the effect they had on the fans, I thought from a psychological point of view I thought it was fascinating so yeah I had a lot of musical interests which were all over the place John Denver was another one Jim Croce uh, as I said Alice Cooper um, yeah I have very I was going to say eclectic taste in music actually probably more epileptic uh, taste in music but um, uh, yeah I've always been a musical person my my uh, mother made a fateful decision when I was in sixth grade she signed me up for a band and um in kind of an interconnected way that did change my life completely forever because it put me into an artistic endeavor in which case uh when i then went to high school you couldn't be in the um sports teams if you were doing the arts you know if you were in the band for example you couldn't be on the football team because you sometimes you know you had to appear at the football games uh at least in the school that i was at so you know and i was a very physical person so i probably would have gone that direction but um, yeah, it changed changed my direction, and the uh, the teacher of that um, music class, uh, Mr. Johns, who I remember quite fondly at McDonald's Junior High School in uh, Fort Knox, Kentucky, um, he said, "All right, well, which what instrument do you want to learn to play?" And I said, "Guitar." And he said, "You know, there's not really a position called marching guitar. <laughs> so I actually picked." trombone okay that was my first instrument because i thought they looked cool and then at the same time i was taking trombone i found out that if i went to school early before classes began mr johns was teaching a percussion class so i started going there so i learned percussion then after i learned trombone i learned baritone and after i learned baritone i went to trumpet and any brass instrument i could just pick up and start playing when i graduated high school i went to the university of florida and I was in the band, the Gator Band. And I joined it late, so I became an alternate, meaning basically whenever they had to march, if there was somebody who was sick, all I was required to do was hold an instrument and just walk in their place. 
But I figured, well, if you're going to hand me the instrument, I'm going to learn it. So, you know, that's where my musical background all came from, except for woodwinds. I just, woodwinds, that damn reed tickles my lip. I just can't go there. I tried it. I would love to be a saxophone player. Just, you know, I can play flute. I just don't look very good doing it. (laughs) So, um, you're not quite a Louis Armstrong. (laughs) Are you kidding? (laughs) Not quite a Louis Armstrong. (laughs) Yeah, I uh, I play, I, you know, I used to play basketball. I wasn't quite Kareem Abdul-Jabbar either. Because <laughs> uh, he was, he was like, they called him the greatest. Um. You know what? You know, the thing is, the great, um, boy, we're getting off into a subject here, like, like most people would think has nothing to do with me. Um, the thing about Louis Armstrong, Maynard Ferguson, um, Al Hurt, all the great uh, trumpet and cornet players, um, what really comes through is not always their technique, although Al Hurt had an incredible technique, um, Miles Davis also, but it was the passion. The passion just came right through that horn. That's what you remember about the way they played. And Louis also was the one who recorded all that music from New Orleans. Um, he's the one who sent it around the world back in the 20s. So if it wasn't for him, jazz wouldn't have led to rock, wouldn't have led to all the other music. (laughs) We'd be be wondering why we have our Amazon units. Say, you know, Amazon, play music. And it would just go, okay, here's something from the 17th century. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. I mean, I, I mean, wasn't it? Beatles, one of the people that they admired was Louis Armstrong. Uh, I I wouldn't doubt that. Uh, I, think I don't, that's I don't Paul, know that for a fact, but I, I wouldn't doubt that. I think Paul McCartney was saying that in an interview I saw. Yeah. Um, and the Beatles. <laughs> I've never heard of them. Stop never me. heard of them? Anyway, I have, I have the same, I have, I have different pathway, but I have the same admiration. Um, when I was 11, we had moved to New Jersey, and we had um, one room where all the kids were. It was very strange to me because I was from California, but you went with the flow. Anyway, um, they had singing lessons, and we were singing, and after we finished, my teacher asked me to come outside. And I thought, oh, my God, what did I do wrong? First thought in my head. <laughs> I was just sitting here singing. I didn't even, I wasn't even drawing a picture. What the heck? <laughs> and mm-hmm. turned out she loved my voice. I had an alto singing voice. And they needed very badly an alto for their um, junior choir. And that's how I started singing in choir. And then when we moved back home to California, I was in um, I was in Glee, um, the Glee air, uh, thing. I forgot what they called it. But my teacher that taught Glee also sneakily taught us all music appreciation, which was like everything from Brahms to current music. I mean, you had to take all of that music in in order to stay in glee it was very clever but they had a um a thing where they did uh, musicals and i'm getting to where i was going but sort of like my life is roundabout and this was roundabout i auditioned for pirates of penzance and um it was up between me and another person for Emily, but she had the more a soprano and I was more alto, so I got the oldest sister. But anyway, that's where I fell in love with acting, mm-hmm. was being yeah. in Pirates of Penzance, which I never would have auditioned for, ever, because I was a shy girl. Mm-hmm. Right. If I wasn't in choir. Mm-hmm. Isn't yeah. it weird? The pathway you go, well, you just... Uh, yeah, the, the pathways sometimes hinge on the things that you just 
at the moment you don't think that's a big deal. Um, I will say that um, music has always meant something to me. It's still important in my life. Mm -hmm. And there is a thing about music. Music wasn't formed by committee. Music was something that was innate in the human experience. It's an evolutionary thing. It is innate to us. There's something about it, the rhythms of it. Um, I think mostly it's the feelings that it evokes. And there was somebody um, a long time ago, I wish I could think of who it was, who made a comment about opera when opera started to become popular. And they said opera was the worst thing that ever happened to music. Now, we, of course, look at opera as being an established art in the musical realm, but the point that that person was making was that before then, music evoked your feelings. You felt the music. You had to write toward making people feel. And opera was, by their definition, opera was having people tell you what you were going to feel as opposed to you experiencing it. Now, we obviously realize it's not as pure and simple as that. No. <laughs> uh, but... But the point of it, though, is that music at its core um, affects people. And my uh, to take that into, you know, where I am, as a matter of fact, and how this led to, you know, help my career, you know, what, it, what uh, participation it had in that. Um, I have always written as if I'm writing music. All of my screenplays, my short stories, my novels, I write in, in a sense of rhythm. You know, I, I told people, and I told you on, on your show before, that nobody ever taught me how to write stories. I didn't go to school for it. I didn't read books about it. I just started doing it. And it's, you know, some people are intuitive. Some people are learned. Um, neither one of them has the advantage over the other. Uh, I would say the person who learns it probably has a little bit more of an advantage in the sense that they know how to fix it if something goes wrong. If you're intuitive, you really don't know where to go because it's like, I don't know how to define this. But I realized that a lot of my intuitive writing um, came from the fact that I that I lived music. And I, I mean that specifically. I lived it. It's not that I just understood it. When I was younger and you know started entering music classes and member of the band, there was a class called music theory, which of course anybody understands if you've done music before. And music theory basically explains why notes are and you know the steps between the notes and how combinations of chords, it's all the analytical aspects of it. And for me, it was one of those things that I refer to as an ooh yeah class, because when they would explain something, I would go, oh yeah, everybody knows that. I mean, don't you know that? I, I knew that. I just never had anybody explain it to me. So even today, when I try to explain um, script construction, for example, it's very hard for me to actually explain it from an academic sense. However, I can explain it from a music sense. You know, mm -hmm. I might say, okay, your first act is a slow build moving up to a, a tremendous crescendo of major chords. Your second act is going to take that major chord and then bring it down, and that major chord is going to be diminutive, and then suddenly it's going to rebuild itself until the end of that second act. You're going to hit it very hard, except this time it's going to be a minor chord with a diminished fifth. All right. Anybody who understands music understands the emotional roller coaster I just took you through. Mm -hmm. But that's how I interpret it in my brain when I write. That's so music that's, has been extremely important in my life. That, I think that's very unusual, Steve. I'm weird. I told you that. You know that. I think I've so. analyzed it enough, but I, I'd like to think that most artists have this, this unexplainable muse, if we want to call it, and you trace it back to who we are as human beings and what our souls resonate to. And music is one of those things that we resonate to. Mm -hmm. It's stories and music. Music and stories, they've always been. Music tells a story. If it's done correctly, it tells a story because it takes you through a certain emotional arc. And even, you know, and what I find interesting is that hip-hop and rap really nails it. I mean, whether or not it's your style or not, um... It's, I am just amazed at how well it hits those rhythms. 
Um, yeah, there's been a, a, a few people have done an uh, analysis, um, you know, analyzing the classical greats and the the hip hop uh, movement and the correlations between the two. Um, I, I find so many things fascinating, but this is one that I just like. Wow, that's that's a pretty cool connection. One of the best memories I have. I went to the big science fiction convention downtown LA at the big convention center, and um, and Scatman Crothers was there because The Shining had come wow. out, and. I, I wasn't the only one who was fascinated by him, because everybody was. Um, not just as an actor, because I, I mean, I loved him in Chico and the Man. That's what I saw him in. But I wanted to know what scat sounded like. I mean, I, I'd heard of it, but I never had seen it. And someone else up front asked my question. I was so happy. And he did 20 minutes of scat for us. Mm-hmm. That was such an education, and he did it with love. It was oh. when you get a gift like that from a talent like that, you never forget it. Yeah, yeah, and appreciate it for the gift that it is and, and what it is. Learns from from it, um, you know. If I, I would say, if if there's something you can't learn from, at least be moved by it mm-hmm. on some level. Oh, yeah. And he was also one of the nicest men I've ever met. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, I've always liked him. He um, he said to everything, God bless you, thank you. Instead of us thanking him, he was thanking each and every one of us for asking for his autograph. I mean, he was just <laughs> this most incredible man. <laughs> that's good. That's good to hear that. I never met him. I wish I had. Um, that's good to hear about him. Sweet man. But, yeah, you, know, you, you, you just... When you get an opportunity like that, to see someone like that who's so diverse and did so many things, grab it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Everybody is a lesson to be learned. Every experience is a lesson to be learned. Now, it doesn't mean that the people you meet are going to be great or the experiences you have are going to be wonderful, but that's, you know, that is where your growth comes from. I mean, we're talking philosophies now, but I've... I've always believed that, you know, even the mistakes that you've made in the past, everybody makes mistakes. I am always reluctant to use the word regret. I say, I, I say I'm not wired for regret. But what I really mean to say is that I don't allow myself to become stuck in the past, beating myself over the head. If I make a mistake, my belief is that I should fix it. If I can't fix it, the least I can do is learn from it so I don't do it again. That carries into the present. That's true. That's true. Also, um, like Xena conventions. Uh, Ah, Xena conventions. Yes. Love me some Xena conventions. I love me Xena conventions. One of the greatest joys for me when I was at a Xena convention, other than hearing you, was was, uh, watching Michael Hurst do Shakespeare or Charles Keating do Shakespeare. I mean... Mm -hmm. I mean, well, first of all, I was a Shakespeare geek. I love, I'm a theater geek. So, and then to see these incredible talents up there just doing it for the love of it because they enjoy it so much, not because they had to or they're being paid for it, but because someone asked them to and they said, oh, okay, and they did it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just, Obviously, oh. you, uh, you are obviously not uh, privy to my um, performances King Duncan in uh, the recent stage version of Macbeth. I did not get to see it, Steve. I wish I did. <laughs> What's interesting is I had a ball doing that, but um, uh, Shakespeare is one of those... Everybody has a different approach to Shakespeare, <laughs> if indeed you have an approach at all. A lot of you may be rolling your eyes and going, oh my gosh, it's Shakespeare. Um, no, Shakespeare great. Uh-huh. Shakespeare, obviously... Um, arguably the greatest uh, playwright in uh, the English language. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, of course, his language was written for his time, and also there were certain practical reasons why you have the, the rhythms that he has in his um, uh, plays and his soliloquies. Uh, however, if you hear Shakespeare, 
or if you read it, it can be very, very confusing because it's not colloquial currently. It's not in our current language now. However, when you hear an absolute master doing Shakespeare, the words are secondary. I remember hearing Kenneth Branagh do oh, Shakespeare. Yeah. And I was like, I don't even need to care what these words actually are. I get everything. There is no, I don't, I don't feel that rigid format of, of rhythm, you know, written in Shakespearean writing, or everybody looks at it that way. Um, so, yeah, when you hear somebody who is really good at it, and Michael Hurst is, yes, you're right, top of the line right He's there. wonderful. So when somebody like that does it, you are immersed in Shakespeare's uh, world. And my approach when I've done Shakespeare, well, I've only done Shakespeare once, which is interesting, aside from doing, like, class sketches and things like that, is doing a stage show. I only did it that one time for Renee's uh, play. Um, so when I did it, my Shakespeare is much more toward a colloquial reading as opposed to the rhythmic reading. And and we had such a, that was such a great time. That was a lot of fun. I love, I love Shakespeare. I think it's really fascinating, too. Um, Judy Dench, I'm sure you agree, she's in the same uh, level. Um, mm -hmm. And I was watching, I, well, I've seen her do Shakespeare, but I was watching a special she was doing about trees. She has a great love of trees. And at the beginning of each season, she did a Shakespearean sonnet. And it's like, it was like an extra gift. <laughs> You can't you can't get better than Judy doing Shakespeare sonnets. I mean, oh my God! Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, yeah. Again, but you see, uh, it goes back to what I was talking about: writing and storytelling. The words become kind of secondary to secondary to the immersion of your soul, your spirit, the feel you have about what you're experiencing. Mm -hmm. And I, 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 in writing especially. I feel that that's much more important. The words are the tools. But I write in a, um, uh, what I would consider to be kind of an imagery style, a vivid style. I'm trying to, I'm trying to create a little movie in your head. And this just isn't screenplays. This is my short stories and my novels. I'm trying to create this little movie in your head. I'm allowing you to, especially with novels, uh, in short stories, I'm allowing you, the reader, to be kind of the director as far as positioning the camera, the lighting, what the characters uh, might finally look like, costuming, background. I'm allowing you all the latitude of doing that, but I'm trying to give you the tools to do it. And then I just want you to immerse yourself in it and just feel it. If you can make a reader feel, they're going to come back um, to your stories time and time again. If it's only about the words, if the words are accurate 100% and grammatically correct, so on and so on and so on, not that they shouldn't be, but I'm saying if you're forcing that, if it's only about that, then it's kind of like reading a textbook or like reading a, a, you know, a technical manual. So to me, every aspect of art is about immersing the recipient in the art, not just showing the person the art. Yeah, I agree with that completely. Um, it's just like when I write a radio play and uh, an actor says, you know, could I just change some of my lines a little bit? I'm fine with that because they, wa they want to put it to their own rhythm. I mean, I'm not precious about that. And that, I said, you can't change this word, this word, or this word because it has to be there for other scenes. But, yes, you can do that. Um yeah, and you know, and and uh, for screenplays for television, there's a big debate about how much latitude actors have in doing that, and the fans want to believe that the actors, not all fans, but they want to, you know, they love their actors, they love the, you know, because the portrayal of the characters, they want to believe that the the actors have complete control over everything. They always ask that question, which drives writers insane uh, to actors, which is, how much of that did you make up? because that's kind of ignoring everything else, which is what the writers do. Uh, however, whenever I've worked with um, actors, and having been an actor at one time, <clears throat> I understand that I have a particular rhythm and voice in my head when I write these characters. 
And now if they're brand new characters, like for a screenplay, then we go through the casting process and things always get a, you know adapted back and forth. If they are regular characters in a TV series, for example, those rhythms are pretty good in my head. <clears throat> but those rhythms that are good in my head are generally the regular roles. You know, using Xena as an example, um, Lucy Renee, Rob Trevor, um, Ted Raimi, those rhythms are in my head, so I kind of write toward those. Mm -hmm. But even with that, every actor, as I put it, they have to roll those words around in their mouth. So they have to be totally comfortable and at ease with the way they, that they relate it. Now, if, it's, if they want to change something that is conceptual or just you know, they, they become, as you say, precious and say, well, I'm just going to change this because I think this is better. Uh, then you do have kind of a problem. Yeah, yes. But, um, but most of the time, I used to start my, um, when I would do production meetings, and you know, the, the department heads would all get together and we would open up the script to go through it page by page, I would always say, um, I say, okay, let's get this off the table right now. First thing, the word is inviolate. And everybody would have a nice, nice laugh, and I would say, okay, let's see what kind of stuff we have to rewrite here. <laughs> we <laughs> but it's, it's interesting because um, I, I'm a big I Love Lucy fan, and one thing they Lucy always said is that we never improvise. The word of the writer was everything. Um, and I also saw an interview with <clears throat> the two writers, and they said they asked about rewrites, and she says uh, the lady, uh, Madeline... I think her last name was Pew, uh, Madam Pew. She said, I don't know how they do it today. She said, all the rewrites that they do, she said, we had to do 30 episodes. We wouldn't have had time to spend all that time rewriting. Um, it, was, it was fascinating to hear the difference back in the 50s when it was starting to the way it is now. Well, back then, actors were, uh, and, and by the way, I don't want anybody to interpret this as criticism, it's just a, a, an acknowledgement. Back then, actors were actors who were hired to do a particular job. Actors were not um, intended to be celebrities mm -hmm. who could then tell everybody else how to do their job. And it's, it's a very, very complex um, history that has balanced things out to where celebrity gives you a certain amount of power where you, you know, at one time, if you had this power and you had a good way of looking at things and more importantly, you respected everybody in the process, it could be a good thing. Mm -hmm. You know, even though you are, you know, the celebrity is kind of taking the lead role, it can be a good thing. Unfortunately, with a lot of cases, the celebrity aspect gave the person power to just on whims say, this will make me look good, or I think this is better, or without any analysis. So it became more of an egocentric uh, type of thing. Now, that's not across the board, but that is one of the biggest things that has changed. Um, and also, you know what, I'm not going to let writers slide on this, uh, because writers have contributed to this situation. Um, if you have really good writers, then nobody has to screw with their work. Mm -hmm. If, however, they phone it in or they just figure, ah, well, you know, everybody's going to change it anyway, so why should I put 100% into it? Then everybody's going to change it because it has to be changed. And one of the trends that I'm seeing, especially online, is this big discussion about the importance of writers in uh, screenplays specifically. Because the rationale is, well, it doesn't matter. You know it's going to be rewritten. They're going to bring in another writer to rewrite you. They're going to do this to rewrite you. And so what that's leading to is a lot of people saying, well, since it's going to be rewritten, I'm just going to write enough to get it sold. I'm not going to really care about it after that. It's a downward spiral. Well, that's awful. And, that's yeah, awful that, that, that they say uh, that. Yeah, I agree. It, it is awful. Um, and it's a hard one to reverse. Uh, writers, writers are the worst enemy of writers. Sorry, got to say it. Um, we are in, in screenplays. Um, we are the really the only guild of the uh, what they refer to as a creative triad, which is directors, actors, and writers. Um, 
I always say what they say is the creative triad because anybody who has worked on a film or a TV shows knows everybody from the bottom up is creative. They have to be. Mm -hmm. So that creative little triad there um, of that particular group, the writers are the only guild that allows us to prey on each other. In other words, I, I can be hired to rewrite somebody else's work. You can have... You know, you, you look at the credits and you see there's like four names on a writing credit. And then you hear all these stories about people having to ad lib or things being added in. And after a while, you start to believe, well, you know, writers are replaceable. They're totally replaceable. You add the business side of it where certainly the accountants, or not the accountants, but the business people uh, want writers to feel like they're replaceable so that they don't have to, you know, get charged a lot of money. But they start to believe that that we're replaceable, and therefore, why put our effort uh, into it? So we, you know, uh, here I'm going off on a little side rant here, uh, but it'll be very quick. Um, for those of you who are in screenwriting groups on Facebook or on any other social media, you know when somebody eventually will say, "What's your favorite line in a movie?" And people start putting up all these wonderful quotes from lines from fantastic movies. Just da, 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 da. Go through them and count how many times they credit the writer. Mm. Most of the time, if they credit anyone, it'll be the actor. Who said it? Sometimes they'll credit the director. Or they will credit the, um, uh, the writer only if the writer is the director. Rarely will you have somebody actually credit the person who wrote that line. Um, they're more likely, in fact, it's even worse if it, if it came from a previous source, like if it came from a novel, they definitely don't do that. And when I have actually gone onto those lists and pointed that out, people who are aspiring screenwriters will then barrage me with all of these rationalizations, things such as, well, who really knows who wrote it? <gasps> you know, could be anybody. And I'm like, okay, well, here's my response to that. <clears throat> Unless the writer comes out and says, yeah, I didn't write that, that was an ad lib. Then you can look at the credits, and that is the person we have agreed wrote this script. Now, you may say, yeah, but that's, that's still ambiguous, because you don't really know. It could be somebody else, they just didn't get the credit. So my response to that is this. Screenwriting, filmmaking is a collaborative effort. I can't tell you how many times I've had to sit in an editing room as a producer and take an actor's horrible performance and work an entire weekend with an editor to craft the shots to make that actor look like they're Oscar award uh, worthy. So am I the, actually the actor or is it the actor? It's the actor because that's the person who was hired to do that job. So that's my little side rant there. but. You know, it's, it's got so many gray areas that people can argue within that, you know, I just fall back and say, look, it's, it's the credits. That's where it is. But as writers, don't tell me that writing is the most important thing in the process. And then at the same time, tell me the writer is the least important thing in the process. I, can't, I can't believe that would be I, – I've seen that in, like, movie fan groups. But I've never I, I I didn't know they were doing it in screenwriter groups. I I just that's amazing to me. I I can't believe it. It's like shooting yourself in the foot. Well, that's one of the things about this. You know, among screenwriters, it's just abhorrent. Now, for uh, many of you may remember a while back, um, fortunately a long time ago, when you'd be sitting in a theater, and before the feature would come up, they had little trivia questions, and one of them would be a quote. And it's called movie quips. And it would be a quote. And then you would say, oh, who said that? Who said that? Who said that? You know, in, in France, they called it a Grand Royal with cheese. And then it would come back, the answer is John Travolta. You're like, well, no, that's Quentin Tarantino wrote that line. You know, it's, it wasn't John Travolta who came up with that. He played a character who said that line. So now they, they changed it, as I remember, to where they would at least list the character uh, and, of course, the movie it came from, but they would list the character. And I'm like, eh, okay, you're still not giving the writer enough credit for this. Um, I was one time invited to be, um, at least sit in on a committee that the Writers Guild had 
which was called basically um, to enhance the image of the writer among the audience because we're kind of unknown. You know, if I went on the street right now and picked somebody at random and said, "Give me name your top five actors," they could do that. Top five directors, they could do that. Top five screenwriters, they're going to struggle. They might mention Stephen King, or they might mention William Shakespeare, or odds are they'll mention a director who also writes, but they won't mention a pure screenwriter because they just don't know who these people are. So I was on this committee to try to raise raise awareness. So I was sitting in on it, and. One of the conversations that came up was about doing outreach programs to universities and screenwriting courses. And I objected to this, not because I didn't think we should do it. I said, that's missing the point. You're basically saying we're going to enhance our image to aspiring screenwriters who already have joined the choir? That doesn't make sense. What we have to do is we have to personalize us as individuals to the audience people out there in the theaters, people watching the TV shows, they have to know not just, oh, this is a Steven Spielberg movie. They have to know this is a Steven Spielberg movie and it's written by this specific writer. It's, you know, it's written by William Goldman. William Goldman, my gosh, and Steven Spielberg together. Oh, I've got to go see that movie. But we shoot ourselves in the foot. That's really amazing. I just, it makes me sad. Uh, and because I think it, writers... It makes, it makes my accountant sad. <laughs> but screenwriters are so amazing. And they, they they entertain people for years and years and years. And I, it, 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 it's like when the movie started in, in the silence and they wouldn't put the actor's screen credit on because they didn't want the actor's egos or them to ask for money and stuff like that. It, it's not fair. The same, it's the same type of philosophy. Uh, we contribute to it. As I said, writers contribute to it. And you are correct. Um, for those of you who don't know, back in the when filmmaking was in its baby steps, uh, the studios fought the idea of actors being recognized as who they were because they were worried that this would give the actor more strength in negotiations. Once the audience said, I want to go see this specific actor, that actor had power. So it's, you know, it's, it's, that has been going on through the history of filmmaking and it has emerged and grown in different ways. Um, but for the writer, since what we do is generally done out of the sight of everybody else, um, it, it is not a joke to say I have many times been asked uh, when somebody's asked me what I do for a living, and I say I write, or what do you write? I write for television. The question then, uh, not all the times, but more times than you would expect, is, oh, um, what, I mean, what do you write? Do you write, like, the story, or you write the words, or, or, or what? And I say, I write all of it. I write the story. I write the action descriptions. I write the dialogue. And then they'll follow it up by saying, oh, I thought, I thought the actors just kind of made that up. Now, that, believe it or not, that sounds like a ridiculous thing, and it's not. I've, I've gotten that comment because there's not an awareness out there. And, in fact, the <laughs> really unfortunate thing is if you are an excellent writer, nobody knows you were there. That's how good you were. That's, and, that's, and that's what you have to do. That's nobody wants to go to a film to see writing. They want to experience it. But if it doesn't start on the page, it ain't going to hit the stage. I mean, haven't these people ever seen a script? <laughs> well, most of them haven't. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I should say that now. Now with the Internet, a lot of people have seen scripts. Because I just, oh, my gosh. But I even mean, then, I'll, I'll give you kind of a side note to that. A lot of people who will go on and look for scripts, which is kind of cool, actually, um, this actually reinforces it because of, a lot of times they will get the script that is an earlier draft, it's not a final draft, or they'll, you know, and they'll read that and they'll say, oh, well, obviously everybody changed this. You know, the scripts go through changes. They mm -hmm. have to. Um, the one that actually reinforces the idea that the writers write everything is actually the worst kind of script, which is a transcript. And for those of you who are looking for scripts online as examples, um, the difference is uh, a script will go through multiple drafts. That comes directly from uh, the writer or writers and it is something that leads to production. 
A transcript is somebody watching a movie typing up the script. So basically they're only transcribing what was in the final movie. So everything looks perfect in that. That makes sense. But I think it's actually kind of cool to see the the script with all the changes and all the different colors and, and, and looking through the different things and learning how the different changes came to be. That's one of the things I enjoy doing when I started going to film school and I was starting to learn things about uh, movies and acting and theater and and all the other stuff that I was studying was to different scripts and how they work and I, it's it's so fascinating. It's a great study and I don't understand, understand why they don't do that. The thing. Understanding how they work and why they are the way they are. Scripts are not written uh, as a literary form of entertainment. Um, you know, if you wanted to write a story for the general public, you write a novel. Scripts are written in a certain format because they have to adhere to certain production requirements. So that's how they're written. But you also have to know how to read them. And what people in the industry do, um, especially when you're when when you're an actor. And as I said, I came out of acting. That's where I started. Mm -hmm. um, and I have worked with. Fortunately, I have worked with some wonderful, wonderful actors. And I don't define them being wonderful actors because they adhere verbatim to what I wrote. I mention them as being wonderful because they actually try to understand why the script was crafted in the way that it was. They, in a sense, the reason I like this is if they're trusting me, they're giving me the benefit of the doubt that I didn't just type this up, that I actually had some, some thought behind it. One of the, um, a wonderful actor I worked with, which was on Sheena, um, uh, was John Allen Nelson. He was the uh, co-lead in Sheena. And, uh, you know, John, if you're listening to this, shout out to you, John. Uh, I had not really worked with John before. And uh, we got through the audition process. We, we went through almost every actor in town. And we, um, we got John. And then we had to shoot a um, sizzle reel, a, uh, basically a, a premise pilot short one, so that we could sell this to the different stations. And this was the first time I was going to see John and everybody else actually um, acting out what I had written and seeing them, uh, you know, do the characters. And of course, this wasn't an entire pilot script. This was just selected scenes that they had to do. So we're on location and I show up and um, I'm doing some business on the set. Um, and this was out at, I think we were at Red Rocks, uh, north of Los Angeles. And so one of the ADs comes up to me and says, uh, Mr. Nelson would like to talk to you about uh, something. He's having a problem with the line in the script. And in my mind, I went, oh, Oh my God, it's already starting. Oh, jeez. So I go over to where John is, and I say, Hi, John, how you doing? He goes, oh, Hi, Steve. No, he pulls out his script, starts opening his I want to talk to you about this one line. And so he opens the sides. Now, keep in mind, it's not a full script, it's just scenes. He opens one of the sides, one of the pages, and he points to this line. Now, my diplomatic way of responding to this is I say, okay, well, what do you think it should say? To try to get a sense of where they're coming from. And so I did that with John. I said, all right, John, uh, well, what do you think it should say? And John said, no, 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 no. He goes, no, no, I, the line works. He goes, I, I, I haven't had a chance to read the whole script. I'm missing the levels you put in here. Just kind of fill me in on what the level's here so I can give it the right type of impact. And I swear, I looked at him and I went, oh my God, you're an actor. Because to me, that's what an actor does. Yeah. And John, John was like that. John always, always looks for those levels. And I didn't know until later on that John has also tried his hand at screenwriting. And so I'm like, yeah, he gets it. He understands. He didn't just automatically say, well, I don't understand the line, so I'm going to get rid of it. I'm going to change it to something I understand. You know, he pointed out the fact that he didn't know the levels because he had not been privy to all of that. So we had a great conversation. And yeah, he was he was wonderful to work with. Cool. I I completely understand that. That's really cool. I I I think that an actor like that, it's it's it. I mean, he, did he come from theater? It sounds like it. You know, that's an interesting question. I'll have to ask him that. Um, and you know something, you are correct. In theater, you are much more um, beholden to the words. Uh, and, and 
you know, for obvious reasons, the playwright has the power mm -hmm. in theater. So, you know, the playwright is either sitting out there in the audience um, next to the director, and the playwright has the ability to stand up in the middle of a rehearsal and say, stop it, stop it, that's not where we're going. Um, and also in the marketing of plays, the playwright um, has a top billing in um, almost every major play. So, yeah, it is it is quite a bit uh, quite a bit different in that. It just it just sort of sounds like a theater guy. Yeah, and also there's a you know tendency that a lot of times um, actors are not trusted to bring this material out. That happens too. That's the reverse of it. Um, when I was uh, you know, Michael Ritchie was directing uh, Macbeth when um, uh, when I did my <laughs> stunning performance. Duncan. And <laughs> and I was, uh, I was, you know, I had not been on the stage for 40-something years. And so I was experimenting with a few things. And so I would go off to Michael and I would say, I said, I'm thinking about using this particular approach on this particular scene. What do you think? And he would look at me and he would say, you're the one doing it. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's right. I am the one doing it. <laughs> so he was basically saying, if you really did something wrong, I would have come to you. But I trust you to find it. So go find it. Um, sometimes actors are treated just as mechanical parts on the set. Not always. Like I said, there's a celebrity problem. And, and that's, that's just as bad. Uh, and by the way, I will extend that. Anybody, anybody who works on a film or TV show at any level, they're not just components or cogs in a wheel. They are creative, artistic people, and if they are fortunate, they can see their fingerprints on the final work, and they can be very, very proud of it. Yep. I agree. Um, we have come to the point where I want to ask you, what's going on? Any new uh, things that you're working <laughs> on? <laughs> did you like that transition, Steve? Um, you did. Nice segue. <laughs> uh, I, you know, I, a lot of things are actually going on. Um, some of you may know that I, um, uh, my wife and I took a vacation just recently where we spent five weeks just driving around the country. We did keep a blog, and the blog is behind us. <laughs> so um, you can, we're writing it, uh, we've already written up things, so we're just kind of posting it at intervals as, you know, so it's written in the kind of first person of like, oh, well, we did this, we did that, we did this, even though we're back in Los Angeles now. Um, I think we're, uh, we're, just did we just head off to Charleston? Yeah, we just finished New York. We're heading off to Charleston, according to the blog. Uh, and that blog, by the way, is authorkabob.com. A U T H O R K A B O B.com. If you're interested in that kind of stuff. But um, coming back here, uh, there were a lot of projects that I was in uh, working on back then, which now I'm catching up to. So some of them I can't tell you too much about them, but I'll I'll give you an overview. It's very exciting. Um, I'm working to develop several projects, and I want to make sure everybody understands just because it's being developed does not mean that it's necessarily being purchased or produced. Um, these are projects that are at various stages of development, and they are gaining various amounts of interest in the industry. Some of them um, we've had to, we, meaning the people I'm working with, have had to turn down offers. Other ones, things are going forward. Um, there is the, um, uh, as many of you know, Kevin J. Anderson, who is the uh, very famous um, sci-fi author. Uh, he and Brian Herbert write all the Dune sequels, and you can see Kevin's name right up there on the screen in the latest Dune movie. Um, he and I have known each other for like 25 years or something, and about, gosh, probably over 20 years ago, uh, he and I just decided to collaborate on a TV show, a science fiction idea. And that idea uh, then became a graphic novel. And we went through a couple of publishers, and, and we finally ended up with a publishing company called The Vault. The project is Stalag X. And The Vault um, published this beautiful hardcover uh, edition of our stories. Plus, uh, there's a novella in the back of the book um, around uh, one of the characters in the story. And, uh, you know, it got out there. It was at Barnes & Noble, Books A Million. First time I saw it on the shelves was Books A Million. I was quite excited. Uh, so that was out for a while. And I had worked um, several 
with several production companies on trying to get something to happen with it, and uh, nothing went forward with those. And then we were contacted by the publisher, um, saying, well, somebody was inquiring about the, the film and TV rights, and we're like, sure, we'll talk to them. And so we made contact with uh, Francis Lawrence. And Francis Lawrence was like, oh my God, this is one of my favorite directors. Uh, Francis directed three of the Hunger Games movies. Uh, he directed I Am Legend, uh, Red Sparrow. Um, he comes out of doing music videos. And so Kevin and I entered into what's called a shopping agreement um, with Francis that he would, you know, basically adopt it, and we'll see where it goes. So the short version of this, I know, too late, uh, <laughs> is that um, COVID and a disagreement between the WGA and the agency slowed everything down. But coming out of this, um, we are now, Kevin and I are now in negotiations with a major studio uh, for them to acquire the underlying rights to Stalag X so that it can more, move forward, either as a, a feature, as uh, Francis uh, definitely wants to do, and uh, or possibly a television series. Francis is also um, forward-leaning about that. So I can't give you too much details in that area, but we're currently in those negotiations, and, and it looks good. Um, now, it doesn't mean it's going to end up hitting the theaters. This is all a step-by-step -step process. But that one is moving forward. We're very excited about that. I have um, several um, anthology stories which are coming out. Uh, one of them is in, you know, I guess I can say this because my name is already attached to it. Um, there is an anthology of stories based around the Alien versus Predator franchise. And um, that'll be published in March. And I was approached to contribute a story to that, which I did. And these are stories that, they're amazing stories uh, dealing with that particular premise, aliens versus predators, but they're also very diversity-based. And one of the stories, uh, the story that I wrote uh, happens in the past, and there is a lot of um, cultural interaction dealing with that time period. Uh, and I was very happy to see that, uh, although I guess I shouldn't have been happy, but I was happy uh, to see that this story that I wrote um, got a lot of attention um, for sensitivity readings, just to make sure that I was not, you know, inadvertently doing something wrong. Um, everything in the story is historically accurate, except for the, the aliens and predators. But uh, I was, I was very happy to see that happen. I, I love the diversity voices we're seeing right now. So, you know, it wasn't one of those things that I was like, ah, darn it, ah, what do I have to do? You know, no, there's nothing like that. It was, it was like, good, good. We're starting to see this awareness filter into everything. So that will be coming out in March. Uh, there's another book, an anthology book, called Last Cities of Earth, and that is uh, based on the artwork of Jeff Sturgeon. Uh, you should look up his artwork. It's pretty awesome. Jeff's it great. It is a futuristic, uh, post-apocalyptic world. You've had Jeff on your show, have yes, you, Yes, he's wonderful. Yeah. He is. Um, in fact, he's going to be at LostCon um, coming up uh, in November 21st. I'll be there on four panels, and uh, I think all of them with Jeff. But Lost, Last Cities of Earth is post-apocalyptic with um, basically the world has divided itself up uh, by using floating cities. So there are fiefdoms, and there are regions that are defended. There are air fleets. And there are stories in this book um, – uh, well, Kevin Anderson has written a story. David Gerald has a story in here. Uh, Jody Lynn Nye, I believe, has a story in here as well. Um, just some pretty in incredible people who have written in here. Brenda Cooper um, and and me, go figure that. Did Jody write a story in here? Sure she did. Maybe not. She's an awesome writer. Um, in fact, I think this was like Mike Resnick. It was one of his last stories before he unfortunately... Uh, passed away. Yeah, Jody Lynn Nye, she's got her story in there. And I wrote two and a half uh, short stories uh, for that book. I'm very proud of that. That will be hopefully coming out uh, soon. I don't know when the publishing date on that is. And I know, I told you I had a lot of stuff. Um, Keep there's, going. A couple of series that, there's a couple of series that I'm developing. Um, one I can't talk about at the moment, and so there I've said all that I can say about it. <laughs> <laughs> We're still in the development stage, but it's. Um, I'm working with a, a couple of people I've worked with before uh, in various positions, 
and it's, it's a really fascinating, mind-bending idea. Um, uh, we're hopefully going to be taking that out pretty soon. And then I have this other project, uh, which I am going to mention, which is called, well, at the moment we're calling it Candide, spelled with a K. And this is a series based on the books by Diana Zimmerman. Diana and I became friends several years ago, and she had a series of books about almost like a Game of Thrones type of fantasy world, except these were fae, you know, fairies and, and magical creatures, et cetera, et cetera. And um, we kind of, we started working on this together. At first, I was just kind of advising her and being a little bit of a mentor, and then suddenly it's like, oh my God, I love all this. And uh, so we ended up working together on this. And this is, this is something that's kind of close to my heart. Um, this is a, uh, a story of three different kingdoms who vie for power. And they all abide by the rules of the ancients. The ancients have written basically the, the laws that they have to follow. And the inviolate law that everybody has to follow is you have to be perfect, physical perfection. You absolutely have to be gorgeous, you have to be beautiful, and you have to be physically perfect. Now what this means is that if you are imperfect, if you are either injured and it can't be repaired, or if you are born with a birth defect, you are considered imperfect, and as a result, you are cast out of the kingdoms into the mists where you will supposedly be killed. So... Um, the story, the initial story, centers around a young princess who is going to be inheriting the throne of the most important kingdom. And she has a certain gift which will bring about winter so that spring can follow. It's a complicated type of um, background to it, but without winter, spring can't follow. So this is extremely important. And when she ascends to the throne, one of her rivals injures her to where she is now an imperfect, and she is thrown into the mists and she has to fend for herself. When she is in the mists, um, she discovers that the people who were cast out there weren't necessarily all killed. They're still there. And she begins to realize that these people are the real people, that they are not imperfect. As one of the characters say, this is my specialness. It makes me unique. So the reason I love this project is because it's an empowering project and it's especially empowering for people with disabilities. I mean, this project couldn't be done without that. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mention a really horrifying stat. I've mentioned this in a couple of interviews recently. Whenever you see a disabled character, for example, portrayed on film or television, 97% of the time it's done by an able-bodied person. That's one of the most horrific stats of all the diversity problems. It really is. It's just horrifying that that is the case. Behind the scenes, even worse. As far as working on the production, even worse. So this is a project um, that Diana and I are hoping to push forward uh, for many reasons. For one thing, we love the story. But secondly, it can mean something. And, and by, by the way, just before anybody makes a comment about um, our position on this, in our proposal, we have fully acknowledged that if this goes anywhere, we have to have those voices in every level of production, including the top levels of making decisions. So I, I'm extremely excited about that. Diana is even more excited. This, Diana is a fireball. I mean, she is just absolutely insane with her energy. Uh, if you knew who she was, and by the way, some of you have probably seen her. She was the top female magician during the 80s and 90s. So if you watched the Carson show or the variety shows and you saw that blonde magician on there, that was her. And she just doesn't stop. So I'm extremely excited about that particular project. It's been kind of a passion of mine for a long time, even before I met, uh, met Diana. So that one is going forward. Uh, we already have interest from several people on that. Um, and uh, we'll see what happens with that. And then there's I'm, I'm fortunate in the sense that I there's another project and I can't remember. Oh, yes, yes, yes. I just remembered. <laughs> there's another project um, that I am, uh, am pushing forward, uh, which, having said that, I can, can't tell you what it is. Oh, God. <laughs> so, so other than that, I'm just kind of piddling around the house and, you know, making little paper hats when, it, when I feel good.
That sounds good. How many paper hats have you made so far? <laughs> My gosh, I drone on and on about this stuff, but I really, I mean, you know, I, I love this kind of stuff. And, I know. You know, to see things move forward is, is great. Um, yeah, and, you know, yeah, we'll see. But I I'm, I'm really am enthusiastic about the, about the Candide story. I think it sounds fantastic. Um, we're coming to the end. Um, for people who don't know uh, that haven't heard your wonderful voice before, could you give them your uh, website and your social media? My website and social security number. No, no, no. <laughs> don't give your social security number, no. <laughs> well, generally, if you Google my name, Stephen with a V, L, that's important, Sears, uh, you'll find some reference to me on Facebook or whatever. The L is extremely important. On um, most of my social media, like Instagram or Twitter, it's FSU Writer, literally F-S-U-W-R-I-T-E-R, FSU being Florida State University, where I graduated from. Um, you can find me that way. My website is StephenLSears.com. One word, again, the L is important. You do not know how many times I've had to send contracts back because they did not put the L in there. Stephen L. Sears, S-T-E-V-E-N-L-S-E-A-R-S, written as one word, dot com. Now, there is another writer named Stephen Sears. Um, that's one reason why I want, want to avoid the confusion. He's written um, some other movies. Uh, Dave Makes the Maze. I'll give him a plug out for that one because that's kind of a cool movie. But that's not me. So it's not that hard to find me. And if you go to my website, besides, it also has the links to my uh, social media. There you go. Thank you. I never asked this question before. What does the L stand for? Loser. No, it doesn't stand for <laughs> um, The L stands, uh, it's Lee, L-E-E. Stephen Lee Sears. That goes good. Yep. In fact, <laughs> some of you who might have known me when we were when my family was stationed in Fort Knox, Kentucky, uh, you know, I was a military brat, so every three years we had to be stationed somewhere else. When I was a kid and we moved to Fort Knox, I decided I'm going to be Lee Sears. I don't know why I went through this phase. I decided I was no longer going to be Steve, Stephen. I was going to be Lee. So everybody who met me there, they still remember me as Lee Sears. And then when we left there, I thought, hey, I'll go back to being Stephen. What the heck? <laughs> Nobody will know. Nobody <laughs> will know. Who's going to know? Who's going to know it? Um, anyway, we've come to the end. I want to thank you for taking time out of your day for coming back on my show. Absolutely. It, it is always fun, Jerry, and I always enjoy listening to your shows. So thank you for having me. Thank you. And thank you for chatting with Sherry. <laughs> Thank you.